you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning. Well, today is a special day. Um, Today we're starting a sermon series that will most likely go on for several years. I once heard Al Mohler comment on how in an expository ministry, you mark time not with a calendar, but by books of the Bible. In other words, our second child was born during Mark, or we started coming to the church during Esther, or we got married right in the middle of Colossians. (laughs) All of that to say, I can't imagine how many significant life events will happen in this church while we're in this series. Uh, We're going to preach through Genesis, all 50 chapters. But don't be too overwhelmed. We're going to take it in chunks with breaks in between for other sermon series. Uh, The plan as of right now is to go Genesis 1 through 3, and then something else, Genesis 4 through 11, And then a New Testament book, Genesis 12 through 25, a New Testament book, and then Genesis 26 through 50. Uh, My burden as a pastor is to feed you a well-balanced biblical diet. Uh, I want you to get a taste of all of Scripture. So to do that, uh, it wouldn't be all that helpful for us to be in Genesis for two or three years straight. So it makes most sense for us to tackle it in chunks, and that's where we're headed. But why Genesis, and why right now? Well, there's nothing mystical about it, but I have prayed about it, and I believe that now is a good time for us, as a maturing church, to drink deeply from this amazing book. Genesis is very intentionally a foundational book. I believe that The more you understand Genesis, the more you understand the rest of the Bible. I know you've heard this before, but I can't say it enough. The entire Bible, the entire Bible is about Jesus. I want to read for us from Luke chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, meaning Jesus' tomb. They went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So this is the risen Christ speaking these words. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, here it is. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses is shorthand for the law or or the Pentateuch or, or the first five books of the Bible. Moses. The prophets are the Old Testament prophetic books. Jesus is saying, from Moses to the prophets, they're all about me. Then, a couple verses later, Jesus gathers his disciples, and look what he teaches them. The same thing. Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There it is again. Jesus teaches them everything written about him where the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and the Psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. It's about Jesus. This is what's known as biblical theology. Understanding that the Bible is one story from beginning to end. And this is why I bring this up with reference to Genesis. There are threads that go through the entire Bible that begin right here in Genesis. So, why Genesis? Well, because it's foundational to the rest of Scripture. Second, because it's foundational to a Christian worldview. If, if I took time every week to address every news story that you guys encounter on a daily and weekly basis, that's all we would ever do as a church. But if we're equipped with a Christian worldview through the scriptures, we're able to hear the news and think as Christians through what's happening, why it's happening, and what we should do. Genesis sets the stage for a Christian worldview. It answers the big questions in life. Why is there something rather than nothing? What is a human being? And where did we come from? What's the meaning of life? What's wrong with the world today and why? Where's history headed? And most importantly, who is God? Genesis is foundational to a Christian worldview. And before we dive in, I just want to encourage us with this right from the beginning. I want to encourage us to let the text itself drive us. Just to briefly give some context, we need to know that Genesis was written to God's people around the time of their wandering in the desert after the Exodus. So they're moving from a wilderness into being formed into God's people under God's law. God is answering some very specific questions for them about who he is, who they are, and the land that he's promised to them. Further, they're learning about previous promises that God has made and fulfilled. My point is this. Genesis is written to answer specific questions and not others. We have to let the text drive the questions instead of placing our questions into the text. If, if I'm needing to put together some Ikea furniture and I open up a computer programming manual to answer my questions, I'm going to be pretty frustrated. I'll be looking for answers that the manual never intended to answer. What am I saying? I'm saying that in modern history, so many people come to Genesis with questions of science, age of the earth, things like that. But Genesis never intended to answer those questions. It's not that the Bible can't answer scientific questions. It does all the time, all over the place. 
But that wasn't the concern of Moses in writing Genesis. We have to let the text drive our questions and then let the text answer those questions. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the writer does not attempt or want to explain creation. With reverence, he wants to catch us up into its wonder. Amen. Genesis is about worship and God's glory. It's about worship and God's glory. Uh, We're meant to, to walk away from the text in awe at the majesty and sovereignty of God over everything. That's where Moses is driving. Okay, some more brief comments on context before we finally jump into the text. What is Genesis? What is Genesis? It's a book of beginnings. In the Hebrew Bible, the the title of the book is Bereshit, the Hebrew word for in the beginning. The Greek translation of the Old Testament took that word and labeled it with the Greek word genesis, meaning beginning. Genesis is the first book of five in what's known as the Torah, meaning law. But when we hear the word law, we typically tend to think of rules, right? And there certainly are some of those. But Torah also means instruction. The books of the Torah have the goal of teaching the reader how to live. The Torah is also sometimes called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, and tukos meaning tool, scroll, or book. So the five books of the law. And it's important to know that these books were meant to be read together. In fact, Genesis 1 through 11 is considered to be an introduction to the Torah or the five books as a whole. John Selhammer writes this. He wrote, The author of the Pentateuch has carefully selected and arranged Genesis 1 through 11 to serve its function as an introduction. Behind the present shape of the narrative lies a clear theological program really important. Nearly every section of the work displays the author's theological interest, which can be summarized in two points. First, he intends to draw a line connecting the God of the Fathers and the God of the Sinai Covenant with the God who created the world. Same God he's trying to show. Second, he intends to show that the call of the patriarchs or the fathers and the Sinai Covenant have their ultimate goal, the reestablishment of God's original purpose in creation. In a word, the biblical covenants are marked off as the way to a new creation. I know that's complex, but this is the key to understanding what Genesis is all about. Who is God? Who are God's people? And what's God's goal for his people? Those are the questions we'll see fleshed out in detail throughout Genesis and throughout the rest of the Torah. Now, if you've ever done any study of Genesis, you know that there's a lot of ink spilled about authorship. Uh, I'm not aloof to the debates here. I actually understand them somewhat well. But at the end of the day, I'm fully convinced that Moses is the author of the Torah because Both the Old and the New Testaments seem to say as much. 
Further, I just simply take Jesus at his word. He regularly refers to the first five books as the law of Moses. John 5.46, Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Simply put, I believe Moses was the author of Genesis. Now, what is the structure of Genesis? Well, as we'll see repetitively over and over and over again, it's very, very structured. And the structure is very intentional. But as a general overview, Genesis has two major sections with several well-ordered subsections. And the two major breakdowns in Genesis are these, primeval history and patriarchal history. Primeval history is Genesis 1 through 11, where we're told the history of the world, how it came to be and how it progressed. Then patriarchal history in Genesis 12 through 25 tells the story of the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, Learning about where something or someone comes from often tells you a lot about who they are and where they're headed. That's what Moses is doing. He's telling God's people then and God's people now, us, where we come from and where we're headed. So, without further ado, let's dive into the text. And to begin our series, I just want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. You could read along with me. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. These two verses are so rich with content, it's unbelievable. First, know that these verses and the whole book are highly structured for meaning. Throughout Scripture, the number seven is a number of completion and perfection. Uh, The first verse of the Bible is seven words in Hebrew. And verse two is 14 words, a factor of seven. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, 35 Hebrew words, another factor of seven. Chapter one, we're going to see seven days of creation. Chapter one, and it was so seven times. God saw that it was good or very good 21 times, heaven 21 times, earth 35 times. The word God appears 35 times in chapter 1, another factor of 7. What do you think Moses is trying to tell us? He's telling us from the start that what's going on here is perfect. It's complete. So... Let's take a look at these words closely. 7 in verse 1, 14 in verse 2. First word, Bereshit, in the beginning. There's so much that Moses is doing here, even with this first word. 
Number one, he's telling us that this is the beginning of the world as we know it. It's not the beginning of God, not at all. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, God has always existed from everlasting to everlasting. But this word, Bereshit, is cluing us in to the beginning of something else. The beginning of creation. Second, even in this word, Moses is foreshadowing. If, if I begin a story with once upon a time, what do you anticipate at the back of the book? And they live happily ever after. Moses is doing the same thing here. In the beginning, anticipates the end. What we see stated all over scripture, the last days. And so, in a strange way, Moses wants us to ponder the end, even from the beginning. Interestingly enough, the end will look similar to the beginning. I want to read for us Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 25. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. No more darkness over the face of the deep waters. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Bereshit, in the beginning. This is where history began. Not God's history, ours. In the beginning, God. This is amazing. First, notice that the Bible doesn't start by arguing for God or for his existence. Because this isn't an argument, it's a proclamation. Charles Spurgeon has a quote about the Bible that goes something like this. He says, defend the Bible? I'd sooner defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible. You open its cage and let it roar. From the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible simply and rightly assumes God. There's no need for defense or argument here. And to be clear, God is the focus. He's the star of the show, the central figure. Everything else, everything else is background, even the creation itself. Calvin says that the cosmos or the world, the cosmos is the theater of God's glory. It displays his majesty and who he is. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. How did he do that? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
creation. It's God's theater displaying his glory. And we as human beings are part of that. God is the main actor, and we are there to glorify him. Do you see that if we're arguing about science and hours in a Hebrew day, that we've missed the point? Now, Al Mohler comments that the central issue here is not a when, but a who. This story is about God. He's the main character and the main focus. I think about extras in a movie. You know, those people who are there in the background. Can you imagine if you were watching a movie? Let's say C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the middle of a scene with Aslan at the center, there were an extra on set, wildly waving his arms, doing jumping jacks, screaming in the background, trying desperately to bring attention to himself and away from Aslan. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Well, the Bible is trying to teach us that. God is the main character of this story. Everything else is there to bring him glory. It's no mistake that God is the subject of the very first sentence of the Bible. For 31 verses in the first chapter, I'll just ask this question. For 31 verses, how many times would be a lot to mention God? How about 35? Just just look through your Bibles real quick. God is everywhere in the first chapter. 35 times. Do you think Moses is trying to tell us something? Yes. This is about God, not about us. And while this book will tell us a lot about us, it's first and foremost about God. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a long one, so hang with me. He says this. He says, the Bible, in a most extraordinary way, starts with God. Because of necessity, before I begin to ask any questions about myself and my problems, I ought to ask questions like this. Where did the world come from? Where have I come from? What is life itself? What is its origin? He says, the tragedy of the world today is that it starts too near to its problems. You come to me and say, I'm unhappy. I'm conscious of a conflict. I'm in a crisis. What's the matter with me? And the Bible says, in the beginning, God. As if it has forgotten all about you. But it has not. The only way to understand yourself or your life is to start with God. The psychologist starts with you and ends with you, and so do all the others. But you can't understand life, says the Bible, unless you realize that at the back of everything, before everything, is God. That's exactly right. So see this. The Bible and the whole storyline of the Bible starts with God. It's his story. But that story is vital to understanding our story. It's vital to understanding our problems. It's vital to understanding real solutions to those problems. 
in the beginning, God. Let's dig a bit deeper, though. What is this word that's translated God? It's the word Elohim. Elohim. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the word Elohim is plural. And yet, the verb bara, or created, is singular. Bereshit bara Elohim. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, the mystery of the Trinity is being revealed. The Bible is clear all over the place that God is a unity. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Adonai Elohim, the Lord is one. And the Bible is clear that God is three persons. Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God is three in one. Even from the beginning, we see that all three persons of the Holy Trinity are involved in creation. Most of us rightly understand that the Father is part of this. But check this out. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 10, speaking of Jesus, the Word says this, All things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus is part of it. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, he, speaking of Jesus again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. How about Hebrews 1, 1 through 2? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Son, he's involved in creation. And while we'll see an explicit reference to the Spirit in just a moment, check out these other Old Testament texts. Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. That word translated breath it is the Hebrew word ruah. It can also be translated spirit. Another one like that. Job 26, verse 13. By this wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Ruah, again, translated wind there. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Elohim, God, are all three involved in creation. Let's keep going. In the beginning, God created. Bara is the word that's used there. And this is amazing. 
Do you realize that no other individual in the Old Testament is ever said to create? This verb is only used of God. He's in a category by himself here. Think of it this way for all of you creative people out there. If you paint a picture, you're using a paintbrush, a canvas, paint that's already there. If you compose a song, you're using an instrument that's already there. If you write a novel, you're using a pencil, a pen, a computer that's already there. But not God. Humans in scripture can make, form, even build. But in scripture, only God creates. And he creates out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God creates ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. And he's the only one who can do that. See this. This is a polemic against idolatry, showing God to be superior and sovereign over all things. Idols are things that are made, but God isn't made. He makes or creates. You'll see this more next week in the creation account itself. But remember where God's people are when they received this book. They're in the desert. They've just come out of Egypt that was rampant with idolatry. Moses is making a statement. Jeremiah 10 verses 11 through 12 says, Thus you shall say to them, The little g-gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. He's sovereign over idols. Psalm 96.5. Again, for all the little g-gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. You see the majesty that's building here in just our first three words? Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. This is a story about God and his grandeur in creating. The text wants us to stand in awe of who God is. So, What did this God create? Look at the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. What's Moses telling us? Well, he's using a Hebrew literary device known as a merism. If you remember from this last summer, Mike Abendroth taught us about this. 
A merism is when an author takes two words on polar ends of the extreme to make a point of all-inclusiveness. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you can answer these. As far as the east is from the west. The alpha and the omega. All day and night. Contrasting words to express totality or completeness. So what's being said here? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's right. He created everything. He's sovereign over everything. Do you see it? Acts chapter 17, verses 23 through 25, says this. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Everything. He created everything. Further, notice that in how Moses wrote this, there's no confusion between God and the heavens and the earth. Don't miss this, especially here in Santa Cruz. God is concerned for the creation, but he's distinct from it. Pantheism which is very popular here, uh, asserts that God is the world and the world is God. Not according to scripture. This is clear. They're distinct. And God is clearly sovereign over the heavens and the earth. He's personal. He's not a, a mere force. And he's not an object of creation itself. I want us to understand the importance of this. If, if God is merely impersonal and that all we have is matter, everything is just random and material. There's no real purpose or meaning or direction to life or death or anything, if that's true. But God is distinct from creation here. He's personal. And he intentionally created all that there is purposefully. There's purpose in every single molecule in the universe. There's purpose in life and in death. In times of celebration and times of suffering. There's meaning in the here and now. And there's, there's hope for where this is all headed. God is purposeful. And he's personal. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Let's look at the first couple of words. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Without form and void. Tohu vabohu. Fun words. 
Throughout scripture, these two words refer to land that's uninhabitable, a desert wasteland that's unsuitable for human flourishing, without form and void. Two things here. Remember again where God's people are when they're reading this for the first time. They're in the desert, an uninhabitable wasteland. And where are they moving toward? A promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The land. Hebrew word ha'aretz, which is the word translated earth here. That word is going to be significant throughout Genesis and the Torah as a whole. In fact, let me just stop here and give us a biblical definition of the kingdom of God. When you see this phrase, kingdom of God, all throughout the scriptures, it means this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Let's say that together. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Kingdom of God. So what's, what, what Moses is pointing out is this. Prior to Genesis 1, not only was there no people, void, there was no place. This is where the story starts. Formless and void. Uninhabitable and empty. Like a bucket of Legos that God created and created good, but he hasn't put them together just yet. Formless and void. Then, darkness was over the face of the deep. You can almost feel the weight of that, can't you? Formless and void. Darkness. Let that sit for a second. To really grasp the beauty and the power of where the text goes in verses 3 through 31, we need to feel the weight of this. Formless. Void. Dark. Second, it's important to know that later on in Scripture, this phrase, tohu vabohu, formless and void, along with darkness, hashek, it is a sign of God's judgment for his people when they do what? When they don't listen to his word. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, says this. Jeremiah 4, 22 and 23. For my people are foolish, God says. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. Verse 23, here it is. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. Do you see that? Here in Genesis, God's word will bring light and order and flourishing to his creation, to his place, and to his people. But when his people refused to listen to his word, the creation was without form and void. No light. God's blessing is being withdrawn. Without getting ahead of ourselves too much, I want us to see the importance of God's word, both 
both his spoken word and his son, the word. God's word will bring chaos or will bring order out of chaos. Light out of darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. Without God's word in both senses, there's no order, no flourishing, and no light. Formless, void, darkness. I want you, and Moses wants you, from the very beginning to to see that this is a story of redemption, of formation. God is moving from chaos to order, from darkness to light. Do you understand just how comforting all of this would be for a people who are roaming around in a desert? God is taking a people who weren't an actual nation at that point, and he's forming them into a people, his people. And just as he's sovereign over the heavens and the earth, he'll be sovereign over them too. He'll have authority to give them order and land and light. But let's bring this a little closer to home. Just look around you. Does the world seem a little chaotic and sometimes scary? Yes, it does. But let us not forget what the word, the light of the world, told us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and... There's that merism, meaning everywhere... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, the end of the age. The same sovereign God who brought order out of chaos is sovereign over our chaotic, scary world today. This almighty God will take care of his people no matter what dangers threaten them. He will bring about redemption and renewal, a new heaven and a new earth. We can have the knowledge that our God is the sovereign creator God who controls the world's destiny and ours. Our God never changes. Then, if these first two verses weren't glorious enough, look at this last sentence. Last sentence. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three present and part of the creation story. And this is such an amazing picture we get here. The Spirit hovering over. It's the same image we see at the end of the Torah as well. So we get kind of bookends here. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 and 11, says this. It says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land. Does that sound familiar? Harmless and void. He found them in a desert land. 
and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept, his, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And what do we see in verse 11? Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. This image of, of God the Spirit hovering like an eagle over the nest of its young, protecting and preparing them for life. Isn't this beautiful? There's more. As, as we'll come to find out later in the Torah, the temple will be intended as a recreation of Eden, where God and man meet. Look what Moses writes as the temple's being built. Exodus 31, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the son of the tribe of Judah. And here we go, verse 3. And I have filled him with what? Or who? The Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. He then gives them the work that they're to do. What's the point? The point is this. In both the creation account and the building of the temple, the work of God is accomplished by the Spirit of God. The same would be true for God's people Israel that's true for us today. God is the central figure who created everything and is sovereign over everything. And every work that he's called us to do, he'll do through his spirit, who, who hovers over like an eagle with its nest, preparing and protecting those who are his. In closing, I'd like to end with three texts that, that push us to see God's glory in creation. And then just take a moment for us to marvel at this God who is so clearly revealed in these first two verses. So let's take a look at these three texts and just meditate on them for a second. The first is Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. One more. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven 
the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Behold our God. Let's pray.